0: morning. Well, as you know, we're in the study of the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 6. and Can you all hear me? The volume needs to go up just a pinch. Okay. Um, we're in John chapter 6, and uh, this is the Bread of Life sermon that Jesus is preaching. And the precursor to the sermon is there at the beginning of the chapter where Jesus feeds the 5,000. We've seen that the 5,000 is, is just the count of the men. And so when you include women and children it's probably more like 10 to 20,000 people that he supernaturally feeds by taking by receiving five lo- barley loaves from the little boy and two pieces of fish and then he supernaturally produces those into meal into meals for thousands of people. That's the precursor to his sermon on the bread of life that we're in the middle of Jesus's miracles, including this spectacular one, makes him incredibly popular. I mean, he's treated kind of the way people would treat a rock star today. Jesus, Jesus, everybody's flocking to Jesus. Remember, they got in their boats on the Sea of Galilee, and in their boats they all went to Capernaum, which is where Jesus was. That's his home base. But crowds aren't always a good thing. I mean, they may be a good thing, but potentially they're not a good thing in this case the people are going to Jesus for the wrong reasons. You know, sometimes you see a lot of people going to church. That may or may not be a good thing. Sometimes people go to church for the wrong reason. Sometimes people go to church because not, it's not that they want a relationship with God. It's not that they want to submit to Him by faith. It's that they want stuff from God. They want goodies from God. And don't misunderstand, God is a God of blessing, to be sure. Any good thing that is in your life is from God. But first and foremost, God is sovereign. And God demands our absolute submission by faith. Obedience always precedes blessing. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Obedience always precedes blessing. And the crowd that's following Jesus as if he were a rock star is there for stuff. Because he gave them free food, and now they're really interested in more free things from Jesus. Jesus corrects them. This is just by way of review before we get into our passage today. Jesus corrects them, and he says, you are wrong. You are wrong. You misunderstand who I am. Jesus says, I am not merely a man. They think he's a man because In verse 42, they said, we know your parents. We know Joseph and Mary. Isn't this the guy who's the son of Joseph and Mary? And Jesus says, I'm not a mere man. He is a man, to be sure. But he's a man, and he's God. Jesus says, you think I'm here to give you stuff. Look at verse, in verse 26, remember he said, you've come to me because you're hungry. They're hungry again. Their body digested the food that he gave them in the feeding of the 5,000. They're hungry again. And so Jesus says in verse 26, I'm paraphrasing, you're here for more bread for your bellies. In verse 15, they wanted to make him king by force. So they didn't just want free food. They also wanted political freedom. So they wanted to make him king so that they can be freed from underneath the boot of the Romans. Jesus says, I'm God in the flesh. I'm not a mere man. I came from heaven not to fill your bellies, but to fill your whole being with the bread of life. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's not talking about a a loaf, right? Brown on the inside, white on the inside. He's not literally saying, I'm bread with the molecules of bread. It's figurative language. When he says, I'm the door, he's not saying, I'm a piece of wood with a knob on it. When he says, I am the true vine, he's not saying he's a plant that has leaves and grapes on it. These are figurative words. These are spiritual words describing his spiritual status. Today, he's going to continue his Bread of Life sermon and he's going to turn up the volume. He's going to make it even more Graphic. Look at our passage, beginning in verse fifty-one of chapter six of the Gospel of John. There, Jesus says, "I am the living bread that came down out of heaven." We saw this verse just briefly last time. "I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." Verse 52, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's teaching cannibalism. I mean, that's what everybody thinks. That's why they break into this argument. The Greek word there for argument is this kind of strong, pointed argument. This isn't some soft disagreement. You know, I'm not sure we're on the same page. No, this is a pointed argument that... The crowd is engaged in because they think that Jesus is telling them to eat his literal flesh because the the crowd is spiritually blind, just like you and me. Spiritually blind because they live by sight, not by faith. And so they think in terms of what they can see and touch and feel. Look, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just being honest. Maybe I'll just speak about myself. That's how I live sometimes. And I think that's how you live too sometimes. Because we get sold by the spirit of the age. That's all the culture has. That's all they have to sell is feel good. Is what you can see and touch and feel. That's why pleasure is the order of the day. Because the culture lives by sight, not by faith, and therefore they are blind. You see the paradox. Spiritually blind. They are blind to the things of the world, and we buy into that. When we buy into that, we are just like the crowd here. Spiritually blind, living by sight in terms of the material world and not by faith. This is why they don't understand Jesus' metaphor. This is why they think literally, not the spiritual metaphor that he is giving. Early in the book, the, uh, the apostle told us he was going to show us this. Early in the book of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 in the prologue, he said, the apostle John said, In him, in the logos, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness didn't comprehend it. That's why when you tell someone about Jesus, they look at you like you have three heads. When you tell someone that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that they are under the wrath of God because they're a sinner and God is holy and God is righteous and God, God can't just say it's all cool with me. God must judge the sinner and you tell them that God loves them and that God gives them a way out through Christ and But for the work of God the Holy Spirit who opens the spiritually dead mind, who gives us eyes to see the things not seen, but for the work of God the Holy Spirit, our mind would be utterly blind in darkness to the things of God. And so what we're seeing in the Gospel of John is the apostle unpacking what he told us about in the prologue that... They didn't comprehend the light, right? We see it in John chapter 2 where Jesus says, in three days, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And they think he's talking about the sticks and the bricks of the temple there in Jerusalem. He's talking about his own body, his resurrection, three days after they would crucify him. In John chapter 3, when he talks to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, I'm a grown man. How how am I going to get back in my mother's womb and be born again? What are you talking about, Jesus? Or in John chapter 4, when Jesus stands next to the well with a Samaritan woman and He says, I offer you living water. And she says, I want some of that water because I don't want to have to come back to this water well every day and draw more water. They all think materialistically. They all think of the physical realm that they can see and touch and feel. They all miss the spiritual dimension of God. Right? The reason the world is blind to the things of God is because God is spirit. And in the devil's great darkness that he foists upon an unsuspecting world, as as you've heard me say before, the greatest trick that devil ever the devil ever pulled is persuading the world that he doesn't exist. That's a, that's a quote from an old theologian. The reason why the world doesn't see the things of God and walks and lives in darkness is because we're so focused on that which is material and physical and visible which is real to be sure i'm not saying it's unreal it's real it's just it pales in comparison to the living god who is spirit and that's why the world can't see the spiritual things but for the revelation and the teaching of god the holy spirit that's what we're getting with this crowd who thinks when Jesus talks about eating his flesh, they automatically think of the literal, physical, material world. They think of cannibalism. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to turn up the volume more. He's going to make the imagery more graphic. Please never think that Jesus is some helpless, hapless, weak victim. Please never think that. You're wrong if you think that. Don't be duped by the message of the culture, by the message of the professors in the university, by the message of Hollywood. Please, that is not Jesus. That is a Jesus of someone's imagination. Jesus is in complete control in the Gospels. Complete control, even of the events of His crucifixion. He's moving the events like the master chess player that He is. He's in total control of the crowd. And when the crowd is offended, we'll see their offense a reference to it today. When the crowd is offended, what Jesus does not do is say, I need to stop talking about the things of God like we do, right? I mean, we're timid. We're timid. We pussyfoot around the issue of, ooh, do I tell this person about the gospel? Do I not? What are they going to say? In the face of offense, Jesus takes the volume and goes, tick. Remember the the old TVs that had the the knobs on them? You you tick up the volume or you change the channels. He just tick, tick. He turns up the volume a little more. Keep reading in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, Son of a man, he's referring to himself. That's that's one of the messianic titles from Daniel chapter 7. He says... So, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There is so much packed into this verse. Jesus says, Come over here, put your mouth on this fire hydrant. Let me open up this fire hydrant for you. These two verses are packed with the teaching of God. Jesus begins with the solemn formula Amen. Amen. Translated, truly, truly, or in the Old English, verily, verily. You see, what the Greeks did is they borrowed the Hebrew word, amen. It's what we do in English. That's what they do in Spanish. That's what most languages do. They take the Hebrew word, amen, which is a word that has the idea of trustworthiness or certainty or validity. And since time immemorial, that has been how we finish our prayers. Amen. Amen. It's a word of validity. It's a word of seriousness because we're going to a God who is serious and we're submitting our prayer requests in seriousness, in validity, in certainty. And so Jesus uses these words to emphasize the importance, the trustworthiness of what he is saying. He says, you must not only eat my flesh, but you must drink my blood. Jesus, that's pretty strong. Those are pretty strong words to a crowd that is already offended by you. By referring to blood, Jesus is taking the hearers back to the Old Testament sacrifices. Leviticus 17, verse 11, reads like this For the life of the flesh, the flesh of the animal, is in the blood. And I have given it, this is God speaking to the Israelites, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of life, of the life that makes atonement. an animal's life is in its blood. We take sin very casually. We're so accustomed to it. We're so used to sin. The Hebrew scriptures taught the Israelites to not take sin casually. Do you understand the significance of Of the animal sacrifice. When the worshiper brought the ox or the sheep or the goat to the priest in front of the altar, it was a very serious matter. You brought your own sheep, you brought your own ox, and you laid your hand on the sheep, and you took the knife, and you slit its throat, and the priest caught the blood, and the priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. And you watched your animal bleed out and collapse. And then you participated in the slaughter of the animal. And the body would be quartered up. And then there was you would eat. Some would be given to the priest. And part of the animal would be consumed. It's a very serious event. Pointing to the significance of sin. Because as you see there in the passage in Leviticus. The blood... Was used for the atonement. It's not that the blood itself was the atonement. That's why this language is very important. It says, I have given it. God says, I have given it. I have given the blood as the atonement. I've assigned it a symbol, a meaning. Because the blood of the animal wasn't the atonement, the blood of the animal was a symbol that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. By referring to His blood, what Jesus is saying is that I am going to die a violent death like the Old Testament sacrifices for you because I love you. Because I love this crowd that hates me, that hates my words. I love you. You are destined for the lake of fire. Because of your wickedness. But I love you. And so I give my life. I will die a violent death for you in my great mercy. This is what Jesus is referring to when he refers to his blood. By using the metaphor, drink my blood, he was saying, you must accept my life as the atonement. You know what atonement is? Atonement is... Satisfying the wrath of God is receiving forgiveness through God being satisfied. You see, there is a great gulf between us and God, a great distance between, a barrier between us and God because you are a sinner by nature, as am I. And God in His holiness and His righteousness can have nothing to do with us but to condemn us. And so atonement reconciles us. Unites us. It's not that God comes to us; it's that Christ draws the two of us together. God doesn't accommodate Himself to us. God uses Christ to accommodate us to Him. That's what atonement is. It's reconciliation. Reconciliation through satisfaction through the Father's need and demand for righteousness and justice to be satisfied. And so by Jesus using the metaphor, drink my blood, he was saying, you must accept my life as atonement for your sins. You must accept my sacrifice, my broken body, my shed blood as the forgiveness of your sins. The difference between the goats and the bulls and the sheep and Jesus The difference between the Old Testament sacrifices and Jesus is that the Old Testament sacrifices were representative. They were representative. They pointed to Jesus who was the true atonement for the sins of the world, not just for Israel, but for us. 2,000 years later, on the opposite side of the planet, in a little town in Texas, for all of us, for the sins of the world, but there's more. There's more to the metaphor that Jesus is using here. He's saying, in the same way that you trust a meal, many of us are going to go have lunch afterwards. You have lunch at the home. You can have lunch at the restaurant. You're going to trust that food because you're going to put it inside your body. And if you look at the food and it's got like weird stuff growing on it, you say, I don't trust that food. You're not going to eat that food. You're not going to put that food in your body. But if the food seems reasonable, you're going to trust the food so much that you're going to put it inside your body. And Jesus says, in the way that you trust food, trust me. Put me in your innermost being. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, is the metaphor, is the figure of speech that Jesus is using. He's saying, you must trust me. You must trust me to give you eternal life. Food gives you physical sustenance. You don't eat, you die. Trust me to give you eternal sustenance. Eternal life. These phrases come to me, eat my flesh. They're figurative phrases that mean believe in me. We studied the Greek word believe, pistuo. It doesn't just mean I believe in you. that Jesus existed. I believe in God. Well, good for you. Good for you. That's not enough. You must trust in Jesus, accept Him, rely upon Him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of, of eternal life. Otherwise, you are not saved. You are still on the death train, headed quickly to eternal damnation. That's what believe means, to rely upon Him, to trust in him. That's why Jesus uses this graphic Im- in an imagery of eat my flesh and drink my blood. As we will see in verse 61, many of the crowd in the crowd were offended by Jesus' words. And that's understandable. It's understandable that those who are spiritually blind do not appreciate and do not understand the spiritual significance of of Jesus' words. They don't understand the metaphor because they think that Jesus is a mere man. So they perceive his words as physical and materialistic. That's why they think cannibalism. The reason the gospel message is offensive to the world today is the same reason it was offensive back then. The gospel message, Paul says, is an offense, a stumbling block to the world, And the reason for that is because the world thinks that Jesus is a mere man. His claim to be God in the flesh is offensive. If you rightly believe that Jesus is God incarnate, then you're forced to a conclusion. If Jesus is God in the flesh, then he must speak of the spiritual realm. If you believe that he is the living God incarnate, then you're forced to a conclusion that His words represent a realm of which we are utterly ignorant, a realm that we know nothing about, the spiritual dimension. You see, there are only two options with Jesus. There's only two. C.S. Lewis was right. When C.S. Lewis said, don't come with that patronizing nonsense that Jesus was a good teacher. Don't come with that patronizing nonsense that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Hogwash. He's a liar and a fraud. Or he's God in the flesh. Those are the only two options. Because a man that claims to be God in the flesh that is not is a fraud and a liar. But if in fact he is who he said he is, right the one who says, I forgive you. As, as Lewis put it, it's one thing for you to cheat me out of 20 bucks, and I say, I forgive you. We'll speak of this no more. But it's something different for you to cheat him out of 20 bucks, and I walk up and I say, I forgive you. We'll speak of this no more. What jurisdiction do I have? Me? Alex Garcia? Zero. But Jesus comes in and says, I forgive your sins. That means he's the one who was offended by the sins, which is to say he's God in the flesh. There are only two options with Jesus. This is why the message of the gospel is an offense. Now, if we want to soft sell it and present the the Jesus of the Bible as some sort of weak individual, then it's not offensive. But if you understand that Jesus is either a fraud or God in the flesh... And that's how you should present the gospel. Fraud or God in the flesh? And of course he is God in the flesh, not the fraud. You've got to, to, to push through and exclude this lie that is really patronizing, that says, well, he's, he's somewhere in the middle. Jesus never let that option to us. He never gave that option to us to treat him as kind of in the middle. He's either one or the other. And the, 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 the person who believes that he is just a man concludes that the gospel is an offense. At the end of verse 53, Jesus explains their problem. It's their problem, and it's our problem. You have no life in yourselves, is what he says. We are born physically alive but spiritually dead. The cute baby that comes home from the hospital, adorable, physically alive, spiritually dead. We're dead men walking. Dead women walking. This is what Jesus says here. You have no life in yourself. He's talking to a crowd that is already offended at Him. But He loves them enough to speak the truth. Verse 54 then describes how Jesus makes the dead live. He says two things. Number one, raising them on the last day. And number two, giving them eternal life. The resurrection is the gateway into eternal life. We saw last time that there are two resurrections. There is the first resurrection of believers only. The first resurrection is believers only. The first resurrection actually happens in three phases. Phase number one is 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. It is the rapture of the church which can happen before the sermon is over, I pray. Maybe you pray that too. It can happen any minute. There is nothing left on God's prophetic calendar to happen before the rapture of the church. There's no other prophetic event that has to happen before Christ returns And Paul describes it as happening in the twinkling of an eye, a nanosecond, maybe a full second. Like that. This is what the Scripture describes for church-age believers, you and me. That's the first phase of the first resurrection. The second phase of the first resurrection, remember, first resurrection is is for believers only. The second phase is at the end, So, so just to speak of, eschatology here, the end times. There's the rapture of the church. That's the first event that will happen when the end times start to unfold like dominoes. That's the first event, the rapture of the church. Then there's the seven-year tribulation described in the book of Revelation by the Apostle John, our same apostle. At the end of that, then there is the second phase of the first resurrection. Believers who died in the tribulation and Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. Then there's phase three of the first resurrection. Phase three of the first resurrection is believers who died during the thousand-year reign. As we've seen many times before, Revelation 20 refers to thousand years, six separate times. That's why we believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on this planet. To fulfill all the Old Testament Messianic promises, kingdom promises of old. So first a rapture rapture of the church, then the seven-year tribulation. Then rapture of the church is the first phase of the the resurrection of believers. Second phase of the resurrection of believers is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's for Old Testament saints, tribulational saints. Then at the end of the thousand-year reign is the third and final phase of the first resurrection of believers, which is those the resurrection of those believers who died during the thousand-year reign. Now, that final phase of the resurrection isn't mentioned specifically in the Bible. So so many theologians assume that it is there, and I assume that it is there as well because the resurrection is for all believers. Then there, the first resurrection is. Then there's the second resurrection, which is for the unredeemed, unbelievers only. All unbelievers at the end of the millennium will be resurrected at the end of the thousand-year reign. So you see thousand years six times in Revelation 20, and then at the end of Revelation 20, you see the resurrection. It's the resurrection of unbelievers there. It's the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers will be raised to eternal death, separation from God, and torments in hell. What Jesus described as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everybody's going to live forever. Everybody's going to live forever. Believers and unbelievers. The question is where and with whom? See, the unbeliever lives forever in a place of eternal destruction with the author of death, the devil himself. That's the abode of the devil forever, the lake of fire, which has been prepared, Jesus said, for the devil and his angels, the fallen angels, the third of the angels who fell, to use the language from Revelation 20. Believers and unbelievers both will have bodies fit forever. Now, the believer's body is going to be fit to enjoy the eternal blessings of God forever. The unbeliever's body will be fit for nothing but the wrath of God, the vengeance of God forever. Everybody is going to exist forever. The question is, where? and with whom so jesus speaks of the resurrection raising them on the last day in verse 54 he's not talking about unbelievers he's talking about those who have eternal life raising believers eternal life is about as you've heard me say a thousand times before and i'll say it a thousand times more eternal life is about quality of life not quantity of life it's about quality of life living with God forever. You possess eternal life now. It's a present possession if you have trusted in Christ. You have it now. It's just you don't fully realize it. You don't understand, nor do I, the full capacity of eternal life, of the quality of life. The Apostle John gives us many beautiful descriptions of the quality of life in Jesus. In John chapter 5, he says that Jesus offers Resurrection of life. In John chapter 6, Jesus gives the bread of life. In John chapter 8, Jesus is the light of life. In, jo- in 1 John chapter 1, Jesus is the word of life. In Revelation 2, also written by a- the Apostle John, Jesus grants the right to eat to believers to the tree from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Do you know that the Apostle Paul, who was transported to heaven and not allowed to speak of it, He describes heaven with one word, one word, paradise. Just one word that sums it up. Paradesis in the Greek, paradise. This is why God in the flesh stands before a crowd that hates him. And as he speaks, they get more offended. So he keeps speaking because he loves them. And He wants them to be in paradise, not in the lake of fire. Eternal life, which Jesus is offering to the crowd and He offers to us, is about quality of life, not quantity of life. Now, when I say that, I'm not suggesting that there's no quantity aspect to it, right? I mean, we're going to enjoy eternal life forever. So there is a forever nature to eternal life, but it's, what i'm what i'm trying to focus on is it's not just existence forever it's existence with the quality of life of god the author of life the author of joy the author of peace the author of prosperity the author of pleasure right the world sells us pleasure like it's our god god invented pleasure pleasure's fine enjoy pleasure you like a nice meal enjoy it There are all kinds of pleasures that God has has created. We're to enjoy them within His fence, but we're to enjoy them, no doubt. Eternal life is spending eternity with the author of pleasure, with the author of joy, with the author of life, with the author of prosperity. Eternal life is quality of life forever. So there is, in a sense, I'm going to use the word time, but time doesn't really fit with eternity, but I'm going to use it anyway. There is a sense of time associated with eternal life because you're enjoying that quality of life forever in the same way that the one who is in eternal death, the unbeliever, will suffer punishment forever. Then keep reading in verse 55 of chapter 6. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The Greek word here for true is alethes. It has the idea of real or genuine Early, earlier in verse 31, the crowd brought up the Exodus generation and manna. They associated Jesus' spectacular, supernatural, heavenly food for the feeding of the 5,000. They associated it with Moses and manna, the, the heavenly food that was given to the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. We studied manna last time. Manna... Comes from, I think I, I mentioned the, the Hebrew word. It's actually the, the the Greek word. The Greek translation of the Hebrew phrase "manhu." Right when they when they came out of their tents and they saw the flakes on the ground, they said "manhu." Man is what? Who is it? What it, it means? Manna means what is it? When you translate, when the when the Hebrew text was translated into the Greek, manna. From the Hebrews, translated mana in the or manhu, translated manna into the Greek. So I think I flipped it the other the the other Sunday, but probably we get the word manna from the Greek translation of the Hebrew, where it's sometimes translated man or mana. The point is, they lived on manna, the supernatural food, for 40 years in the wilderness, every day. You know the, the Jewish moms had all kinds of ways to cook up the manna, right? Manicotti, <laughs> manaroni, manaroni. and cheese. They lived on manna for 40 years. So it was woven into the, the minds of the Israelites and their minds gravitate to the literal manna when they saw Jesus feed the 5,000. We... we when we, when we were, a couple Sundays ago, we saw that part of the crowd that Jesus is talking to here is the same group that he actually ate the food from the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is saying, in John chapter 6, I'm more than the manna. He's distinguishing himself from the literal, literal manna that they fed on because the manna that the Exodus generation fed on, yes, they were sustained by it. They lived by it, but then they died, just like every other generation in human history. Jesus says, I offer you a better food, a better heavenly food, the true, the genuine, the real food of heaven that will not sustain you for a day or for five hours until the next meal, but it will sustain you for a billion years, times a billion, times a trillion, times a trillion. I am the bread of heaven. Eat me, Jesus says in this figurative language to the crowd. He offers heavenly food that gives them forever life. He is saying he is the true manna. If you eat me, if you receive me into your innermost being, then you will live forever and ever. You will never die. And the reason you will never die is because I will be with you forever. Look at verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Abiding is the Greek word meno, which means to remain or to stay or reside. It's a very important theological concept. Jesus remains, resides, with the one who receives him. This is a permanent relationship with Jesus for the unbeliever, who then believes. Because Jesus is talking to a crowd of primarily unbelievers. This is different than John 15, right? Where Jesus says, I am the vine. And and we'll, we'll get to John 15. But John 15 is about fellowship. John 15 is addressed to believers because Jesus is in the upper room. He's talking to the disciples. And Judas has left the room. John 15 is is Jesus saying he abides, he menos with the believer, but sometimes the believer wanders off and sins and so we're to we're to confess our sin and, and 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 to be restored to that fellowship with God. Otherwise we're functioning outside the vine and we're not producing fruit. And so John 15 is a different context is what I'm saying. Here in John 6, Jesus is talking to unbelievers, not believers. And in John 6, he's Speaking of the permanent situation of eternal life. This is about eternal security. You can't lose your salvation. Once you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, you can't get unsaved again. You're forever saved. And the reason for that is because it's not dependent on you. You're not that important. Nor am I. It's dependent on God in the flesh who lives in you and you in him this absolute perfect union and that union between jesus and you is what gives you the never die status it's what gives you eternal life christianity is about a relationship christianity is a relationship with a person a person who gives eternal life It is a permanent, forever relationship with the author of life. Then in verse 57, Jesus tracks what life looks like. He tracks the flow of eternal life. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. You say, well, well, wait a second now. Jesus, you just said... I live because of the Father. I thought Jesus was God. I mean, what do you mean you live because of the Father? What's he saying here? You're right. Jesus is fully God, fully man. The scripture is clear about that. Jesus is saying that the eternal life that he gives is because of the Father. He's referring back to the delegation of authority that he talked about in John chapter 5. Remember John 5 verse 26 for just as the Father has life in Himself, so even, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in him, Himself. And He gave Him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Again, we see the Messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. This John chapter 5 passage was Jesus saying, The Father has delegated to me all authority. Authority over life, to give life, and authority over judgment. What's included in judgment is death. Jesus has all authority. That's why Jesus will sit on the great white throne judgment. The Jesus that we think of as the soft and cuddly Jesus is the Jesus, he's the one who will cast the unbeliever into eternal, into the eternal fire. It just says what it says. And you say, I don't like that. and okay your truth is irrelevant let me say that again your truth is irrelevant you know everybody talks about your truth tell me your truth I don't care about your truth I care about the truth which is independent of us because this is all about authority either we submit to the authority of the word of God either we submit to the authority of God or we submit to the authority of me myself and I the unholy trinity Jesus has, God has delegated to Jesus all authority. Authority over life, authority over judgment, and judgment includes death. And so in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I live because of the Father, what he's saying is, I give eternal life because the Father has delegated it to me. Jesus submits to his equal. Jesus is God the Son. Now, the focus here isn't God the Holy Spirit. We'll see God the Holy Spirit later in the book of John. But it's the same for God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit and God the Son submit to their equal. They submit to the Father. Jesus has said many times, we've seen here, the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father, even though he is, Jesus is fully God, just like the Father. And you've, you've, you've heard me make this reference before. It is very similar to the way the Scripture calls a wife to submit to her husband. She submits to her equal. And the husband that thinks that his wife is inferior to him because she submits to him, is a fool. A fool. The Scripture lays out this great imagery. Jesus says to to, to ladies, for example, don't do what I say. Do what I do. I mean, that's a leader. A leader says, do what I do. Let me show you what it looks like. Let me show you what submission looks like to your equal. And so... That's what we're seeing here embedded in this passage here in John chapter 6 where Jesus says, I live because of the Father. He's saying, I give life because the Father has authorized me. I've submitted to the Father, even though He's my equal. And the Father has authorized me, has delegated to me the authority to give life. This is the flow of eternal life. Life starts with the Father, then the Son, and the Son gives it to you. And to me, once we trust in Christ, we're seeing that Jesus is the go-between. That's what a mediator does. You're ever involved in a lawsuit, the judge is going to order you to mediation. The judge is going to say, I don't want you to show up and take my time or the jury's time until you go to the mediator. Both sides have to fork up money to pay this mediator. And the mediator meets, mediator has... One group in one room and another group in the other room. The person who's doing the, doing the, filing the lawsuit in one room and the person who's getting sued in the other room. And the mediator goes back and forth and says, look, you need to, let's resolve this. And he goes to the other room, let's resolve this. And at the end, the two parties, the mediator puts the two parties together and they're reconciled. And the lawsuit goes away. They agree to some resolution. No analogy is perfect, I get it. But Jesus is the mediator so to speak, he puts God's hand and our hand together. He brings us to God and he does it through eternal life, the eternal life that we receive through faith. Keep reading in verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. There it is. This is the fundamental question, question of, of Christianity. Who wants to live forever? Right? Pick me, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you got it wrong, Alex. I offer it to everybody. The black, the white. The tall, the short. The rich, the poor. And all you have to do is accept it but I make the offer to everyone, everybody. And all you have to do is accept it, and you will live forever. We don't understand what that means. We read it in the text, and I feel like sometimes it's like a boing I mean, that's the way I feel when I read it. I don't fully understand what that means because I have a finite little pea brain And God's omniscience and love and mercy and grace is beyond my comprehension. It is boundless. And His eternality is beyond my ability to grasp it. But He makes it, He reveals it to us so that we may accept it. This is the message of Christianity to a lost and dying world. The question is, who wants to live forever? And the answer, of course, should be, Everybody. But in order to to receive eternal life, you have to submit to God. You see, what's happening here is a message of bread. And as we close this part of the service today, maybe you're here today and you haven't accepted Christ. Maybe you're here today and you don't have eternal life. And so, what I would like to do is speak to you as one beggar to another simply telling you where I found bread. That's the message of the gospel. As the old quote goes, it's one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. This is the bread of life sermon that Jesus is preaching in John chapter 6. If you have not accepted Christ, you are subject to his wrath and you will live eternity in the lake of fire. The pit is ready for you it's prepared for you. You stand on the, on the, on the edge of the, of the precipice. You stand on the cliff, and your toes are over the edge, and Jesus extends his hand and says, Come to me. Trust me. Accept me, and I will save you from the judgment that you deserve. Salvation is an act of faith. It's trusting in Christ. Jesus is the one who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. God validated his words by raising him from the dead. And so in a moment, we're going to have communion. And in communion, I need to talk about how this passage relates to communion. How Jesus' words about eating my flesh and drinking my blood relate to communion. What is Jesus saying? What what connection does it have to communion? Well, first, Jesus won't institute the ritual communion for another year. Because He doesn't institute the ritual communion until the Last Supper, the night before He is to be crucified. That's a year from when He's giving the Bread of Life sermon. So I should say first, John chapter 6 is not referring to the communion table. It is not referring to the ritual of communion because it hasn't been instituted yet. The other thing that Jesus is not doing in John chapter 6 is he is not teaching that the bread and the juice somehow become, that we will consume in a moment, somehow become the blood and the physical body, the physical flesh of Jesus, he's speaking spiritually. Look at verse 63. Verse 63, he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. This is metaphorical language. This is spiritual language. The other thing that Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying that you must participate in the communion table, you must participate in the communion ritual, otherwise you're not saved. He's not saying that. Because otherwise, John the Baptist is in hell. Otherwise, David, Abraham, Moses, all the Old Testament prophets, they were never saved because they never participated in communion. No, Jesus isn't saying that you must participate in the communion ritual to be saved. What's happening here is we're getting this vivid imagery. There are two rituals that Jesus instituted for the church age, water baptism and the communion table. And both of those rituals happen after you've been saved because they picture what happened in the past. Right, Water baptism, you're immersed into the water. It's a picture of the baptism of the Spirit where we are baptized into Christ, baptized into the identity, into the sacrifice of Christ. But you're water baptized after you've already trusted in Christ. It's, that baptism is a picture of what's already happened in faith. We're going to eat the bread and drink the juice. It's a picture of what's already happened for us. That we have already, I have already eaten the flesh of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Spiritually, metaphorically. I've already been saved because I've trusted in Him. I, I, I pray that you have as well. And so the connection between John chapter 6 and the communion table is that the, the John chapter 6, the metaphor that Jesus gave us explains the symbolism of the bread and the juice. It pictures what has already happened in the past. Remember Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The ritual of the communion table. When we put the bread and the juice inside our bodies, it's commemorating. It's remembering that we have become unified with Christ. That we have accepted Christ in our innermost being by faith when we eat the bread which symbolizes His body, when we drink the juice which symbolizes His blood, which is the atonement which satisfies the wrath of God. Those are symbols, beautiful, powerful symbols of the imagery, of the picture that we have seen in John chapter 6. Please bear that in mind as we participate in the communion table. I'm going to pray and then we'll enter into communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the great work of God that you have done through God the Son. We thank you for his incredible teaching, the vivid imagery, the vivid metaphors to make clear to us the significance of trusting in him. We thank you that you've preserved us as an, as a nation. We ask, as, as was requested of you earlier today, we ask that the election on Tuesday, that you move events in a fashion that you would give us godly leaders who would obey you, who would proclaim your ways, protect us from the wickedness and the darkness that is growing within our nation, restrain the wicked leaders that we have and promote the godly ones that we have, and give us an election where your leaders, leaders that would do your ways, would lead us, and in the end, we submit all of this to you, and we acknowledge your power, and your grace, and your sovereignty, even over our nation, and over the election. We pray these things in Jesus' name.